Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast, sponsored this week by CyberArk. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief and publisher at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, the nonprofit group Freedom House warned in a recent report that internet freedom is at threat around the world as more governments adopt policies and tactics designed to promote official narratives and curb free information. We'll talk to Freedom House Research Manager Adrian Shabazz about what his organization found. And Uber's loss of information on more than 50 million customers shown a spotlight on the risk posed when sensitive credentials slip into public view through shared resources like the GitHub Code Repository. This week, we'll talk with Elizabeth Lawler, the Vice President of DevOps Security at CyberArk, about the problem of what she calls DevOps secrets. But first, shoppers were off to the races on Black Friday last week, spending an eye-popping $5 billion in online sales alone. Smart toys and wearables are once again on many shoppers' list of toys to buy, but security experts warn buyers to beware. Lax design standards and absent security features often result in connected toys that bleed sensitive information to whomever cares to listen. Regulators in Germany endorsed that idea recently when they declared a range of smartwatches sold to children in that country to be surveillance devices that are banned under German law. They further ordered any consumers who had purchased the smartwatches to destroy them and get proof that they did so. My guest this week, Ken Monroe of the firm Pentest Partners, has been on the vanguard of those assessing the security of connected playthings and sounding the alarm about the lack of privacy and security standards in smart toys. Ken came into the Security Ledger Studios to talk about the German government's decision regarding smartwatches, a decision that he strongly supports. I started out by asking Ken whether regulators in the U.S. might not also consider smart toys that have microphones and cameras to be illegal surveillance devices. Yeah, so my name's Ken Monroe, and I'm a security researcher at Pentest Partners. I think the problem right now we have with IoT is that there's a complete lack of standards and regulation that manufacturers can can follow or be held to account with. Right. And I know in some of the reporting, it's sort of like, well, Germany has very strict laws about unauthorized recordings. But I'm thinking, well, so doesn't the United States and so don't most other countries, right? Well, I think Germany particularly, there's um, a hangover from the, the last war. There was a lot of um, attention given to privacy of consumers sort of 60, 70 years ago to, to the point where it was very explicitly illegal to record someone's voice without their permission. And um, credit to uh, a security researcher uh, about six months ago, he noticed our work around my friend Kayla and reported this to the, the, the German agency who went, hang on, that's a covert, a concealed audio device that's, that's listening. So that's, that falls foul of our regulation. Ban. And it was near instant. Yeah. You know, the Germans are really, really quite uh, on it. It's like, it's not, no, this product's banned, you know, send it back for a refund. It's destroy the product. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's, you have to destroy it and you have to actually collect proof that you've destroyed it. They've got a unfortunately worded extermination certificate that you're supposed to get. Or I guess you can take pictures uh, of the destroyed device and, and use those as proof. Yeah, perhaps some unfortunate words there. Although I'd strongly encourage you, you can send them to me if you like. I'll, I'll rehome Kayla's and um, look after them. <laughs> and, and you mentioned my friend Kayla. That was a, a, a child's doll that your company did some research on. What did you find with my friend Kayla? Kayla was, I think, one of the first 
properly interactive kids' toys we'd seen uh, nearly three years ago now. And she talks over Bluetooth to your smartphone, uh, where an app does all the clever stuff. So Kayla herself is fundamentally a, a Bluetooth headset. She's got a speaker, a microphone, and Bluetooth. And I kid you not, you can connect it to your, your phone, and you can make phone calls with the doll to your ear, which does look really weird. But uh, unfortunately, that, that's where one of the most simple flaws came from, is, is there was a lack of security on that Bluetooth connection. So think about when you connect your, your phone to the hands-free phone kit in your vehicle. You, you have to put in a number, right, a pin. And that creates a, a form of security, uh, which makes it quite difficult to hack. But Kayla had none of that. She had no pin. And because she had no pin, therefore, she had almost no security. It was quite easy to pair her to a rogue device. And then anyone who knew how to set up a Bluetooth audio device could speak to the child through the doll or listen to the room they're in. And that, that's where things got just a bit creepy. And we've seen variations on that type of attack with, um, you know, baby monitors and other kind of um, connected wireless devices as well. People taking control of them, speaking to the child over them, and so on. So that's not an unusual uh, attack. Yeah, it is, it's just really creepy. But the, the, the reason why I was interested in Kayla was on the, the box and the pack when I saw her in the retailer store, it, it referenced the fact she was internet safe and child-friendly and, and had anti-profanity filters. And I don't know about you, but you know, there's, there's that um, part of me that sees that and just wants to break it. Can I make an innocent kid's doll swear? and cuss to order. It, I had to try. And a couple of my colleagues and I got together and we looked at the, the mobile application to see how she was doing this, you know, not swearing. So if the child swears at the doll, she won't reply. She'll go and tell the child to speak to her mom. Or if it sees any content it doesn't like, she won't say it if it includes swearing. So we reverse engineered the mobile application, had a look to see how it's um, dealt with swearing and found the most amazing database of just over 1,500 really quite offensive words. <laughs> So makes for some great reading. Um, so <laughs> we thought, well, hang on, what if we actually edit that database? So we modified it, recompiled the app, pushed it out to the phone and swore at her. And she swore right back at us, which made me very happy. <laughs> I feel really quite childish. But the, the point was made. It's, you know, it, it was so easy to do. It required comparatively little skill. And it's incredibly easy now. You know, there's a house on our website. You, you can read up exactly how to make kids' toys really offensive if that's what tickles you. <laughs> so un unpacking this issue, are they really surveillance devices? Do you think that they kind of fit that description? They're not designed to be that. And I, I don't think the manufacturers set out to create an invasive product. I think what happened is along the way, they had a bright idea. thought, right, let's get to market. Let's do this quickly. Let's get first mover. Let's make, let's make some money out of this. And no one there thought to raise the question about security, just through probably ignorance and a lack of time. And, but sadly, the result of that, they ended up shipping a product that could be used for surveillance if you're a malicious actor, if you were your next door neighbor, maybe in Bluetooth range, if you were someone out on the street outside the kid's house within perhaps 50 feet or so, or a little bit more with a high gain antenna, you could. So I don't think they set out to make these surveillance devices, but I think by omission, they've made them. The other issue is that there are vulnerabilities, security weaknesses in these products that make them highly susceptible to tampering and misuse. So even if they are well-intentioned, the ability of people to abuse them is dangerous as well. Yeah, so we're looking at the watches for a moment. So the idea being is that you, you can put a tracking watch on your on your kid and then you know if, if, if they're not with you, you can see where they are. In an emergency, they can call you. But the problem is the way that GPS data was shared wasn't encrypted. So someone could tamper with that. And you could either 
adopt the child and make it look as if they were still in your house or you could also make it look as if they've been abducted even though they were just outside in the yard so you could cause some real problems um, there so it was just this lack of thought about how to how to send those messages that led to the ability to really cause chaos. So this kind of well-intentioned features, but not a lot of sophistication about how to implement them. There is also this issue around the consent of the people who are happen to be in proximity to your child, right? So, you know, you want to monitor your child and, and hear what they're hearing, which I guess as a parent, you know, might be something that you want to do. To the extent that your child's out there in other spaces, and you know the German regulators talked about some parents using this to listen in on the teacher's lesson at school. It, it raises a lot of issues around around that. You know, where do your rights as a parent end, and the rights of people to be have a, a degree of privacy begin? Yeah, and again, I just don't think the manufacturers really sat down and thought through privacy, did they? They didn't think about how these devices are going to be used. They thought, right, here's a really cool feature. There's a great sales message here. Concerned parents can keep tabs on their children. They just haven't thought through. The other areas it might affect, they haven't thought through the security, they haven't gone and researched security, they haven't found organizations that can help with security, and they've inadvertently invaded other people's privacy because they just didn't think it through. I mean, is there a way to do this um, without running afoul of the types of laws that are on the books in Germany and, frankly, in a lot of other countries around unauthorized recordings? Or is remote listening via these connected devices just categorically as a feature wrong and should not be offered? It's very difficult, isn't it? Because you want you to be able to speak to your child. You want your child to be able to speak to you in certain situations. What you, what you don't want is that being misused against you. And I would say, it, I'd argue perhaps it's it's the intent. If the child presses a button in order to speak to their parent because there's an, there's an emergency that, and it's important, I think any lawmaker would go, do you know what, that's fine. But it's when the device is always listening. Mm-hmm. That's that's where the boundary is crossed, I think. And I think it's, if we consider that that microphone, it could be hacked, it could be modified, it could be continually streaming, that's where the problem lies. So it's perfectly possible, in, to my mind, to do this in a reasonable way, in a secure way that doesn't invade privacy. But it involves thought first. I mean, you mentioned the other issue, which is when you saw the My Friend Kayla doll uh, for sale, the box uh, was labeled, you know, internet safe. Uh, A lot of promises being made out there by manufacturers about uh, that imply cybersecurity um, and privacy protections that you found in your research really are pretty empty promises. They are. How is the consumer supposed to know right now? How does the consumer go to product A and go, that one's secure, and product B and goes, that one isn't? And, and that's a real issue, I think, that the whole IoT industry has right now. We need, in time, some sort of you know, consumer trust mark of some description that the consumer can go, okay, this one's more secure than the next one. Yeah, the, the secure one's a bit more expensive, but you know what? The consumer in me, I'm prepared to pay a bit more for my privacy. I'm not going to buy the cheap one where the guys just didn't think about security right. Now, those sort of um, marks are being worked on by all sorts of different organizations right now. And I think there's a bit of a, a rush to try and be first to market or to have the biggest, most recognizable mark because they can probably charge for its use. So again, you have exactly the same problem as we had with the IoT vendors rushing their product to market. Now we have these 
trust marks rushing to market too. We're in three different countries. Um, well, actually, we're in two different countries, but this story encompasses three, Germany, uh, the, you're in the UK, and I'm here in the United States. We know what they're doing in Germany, which is telling consumers, kindly bring your device down to the incinerator and bring back a certificate showing that it's been destroyed, which, like you, I think is just a great message. Where do things stand uh, where you are in the UK and, and in the US uh, on these types of issues? So there was a really interesting piece of draft legislation published in by the US Senate uh, a little while ago, probably a couple of months back. It was the draft IoT cybersecurity bill. And I was I thought it was brilliant. It was really it's really concise. It was about stating that government, US government and agencies can only use IoT devices that comply to certain security specifications that they wrote, which I thought was great because if you drive government behavior, you'll drive the whole market by design. Unfortunately, as I understand it, the US Senate is is quite tied up to dating tax legislation right now. So I think the chance of it making law in the short term is, is relatively remote, but I really support the senators who introduced that bill. And I think you know, there should be a lot of effort to try and make that law in time because that will drive secure IoT behavior. Going to the, the UK, there are various government agencies here um, trying to build some um, security standards. And in the in the EU, we have ENISA, the European Security Agency, is, is working hard too. Um, they've done a lot of work already. They've published some interesting um, standards, some draft standards that require a lot more debate, although they are quite complex. And I think that contrasts, interestingly, with the, the US draft Senate bill, which is beautifully simple. And I think we could take a lot from that. We're coming into the uh, holiday season. People are going to go out and buy gifts, presumably for kids, connected gifts. Um, what's your advice to consumers, to parents out there? Wow. So, so be really careful. Now, the sort of products that really bother me are those with sensors that can be used. Kids toys that you can drive around. Great. No problem at all. I, I've got a great toy, the, the BB-8 toy from Sphero. I love it. Really, really cool. Um, uh, sorry, BB-8 droid. I love it. Not many sensors on it. So that's relatively safe. However, products that start involving cameras, speakers, and microphones, if they're interfered with, potentially there's a lot more trouble there. So I would be a little more wary about smart products for your kids that have speakers, microphones, and cameras. Uh, and until I think we see some good standards out there and some good guidance for manufacturers, I'd be a little wary. Ken Monroe of Pentest Partners, thanks so much for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. Up next, Donald Trump's surprise victory in the U.S. presidential race last year prompted a flurry of reports about how the Internet and social media are being used to shape the perceptions of the public. A new report out from the folks at Freedom House supports that argument, finding that Internet freedom receded in 2017 as more governments turned to the use of paid pro-government operatives on the Internet and social media networks to promote official narratives and discredit critics. Adrian Shabazz, the research manager at Freedom House, stopped by the Security Ledger podcast to talk about how repressive governments have switched from trying to curtail internet access to using the internet as a tool of oppression. I started by asking Adrian to talk about the recent Freedom House report and the different ways that governments are weaponizing disinformation online. My name is Adrian Shabazz. I'm the research manager for the Freedom on the Net project at Freedom House. Freedom House has been ranking countries' internet freedom for uh, seven years now, and unfortunately, every year we've seen a decline. This year, one of the growing trends that we noticed that was driving the decline was governments, more and more governments manipulating online content to influence elections at home and abroad, 
as well as to muzzle dissent and sort of shape discussions online. What our report does is we measure three categories of restrictions. One category that looks at obstacles to access, another that looks at limits on content, and a third looking at violations of user rights. And we rank countries in a sort of this holistic view of, of internet freedom. So not just an ability to get online, but that when getting online, content is open and that people do not face undue penalties uh, for certain speech that they post online. So we saw the use of paid pro-government commentators in 30 countries over the past year. And we've seen that marker jump every year since we started tracking it in 2009. And what we wanted to do this year was actually look at the different tactics that governments were using in order to manipulate social media, in many cases to undermine democracy. Those five tactics that we profiled were uh, paid commentators, political bots, fake news, government propaganda, and interestingly, the hijacking of prominent social media accounts in order to spew misinformation. And while a lot of these tactics were pioneered by the likes of China and Russia, even insofar as a decade ago, we've really seen these tactics go global and um, we've seen what sort of devastating effect that can have on democracy and civic activism. Actually, we saw some type of manipulation tactic or disinformation play out around 18 elections, including the United States. And, you know, it's incredibly worrisome because this type of manipulation, unlike let's say, more direct forms of censorship, um, it's incredibly hard to detect in some cases. It's so much more uh, dispersed. And, and when we look at like the sheer number of people that are involved or the sheer number of accounts, um, it's really this pervasive phenomenon that I think is really undermining trust and confidence in the Internet itself. In the U.S., we were obviously very focused on allegations that Russia interfered with the U.S. election through many of the strategies that you just outlined there. Your report found that it was actually much more common that governments were targeting their own population and, and manipulating their perceptions rather than that an outside force or government was trying to influence an election. Exactly. We saw cases of this, um, you know, in, in all sorts of countries from the Philippines, uh, Turkey, Kenya, to then even in Ecuador. Um, so, you know, I think that we've seen the, the barrier to entry um, be lowered. The fact that you can now pay somebody, you know, $10 an hour to sort of post inflammatory content online or, or content that smears the, the opposition or promotes uh, government policies or a particular candidate. It's, it's really worrying in terms of the way that the internet was uh, certainly conceived or the potential of the internet to act as this public sphere where citizens can be confident that by, you know, firing up social media, they're sort of gauging the temperature of how their fellow citizens uh, relate to themselves and to their own government. It's been really concerning to see governments in some ways using the internet against democracy. So rather than restricting the internet in the ways that we've tracked for numerous years um, through you know, blocking websites or increasing surveillance, they're now employing the same sort of tactics that democratic activists have used, that investigative journalists have used, but to these more anti-democratic ends. And that's something that we see is really troubling for the future of democracy and also you know, future trust in the internet. And when you're measuring internet freedom, you mentioned some of the things that 
uh, you're looking for, but what types of activities or freedoms constitute a internet-free country versus one where there is restricted freedom? So the country that scores worst in our uh, ranking this year is China, um, followed by Syria and Ethiopia. Uh, and so I think when you take a country like China or even um, Iran and Russia that are certainly moving towards that China model of internet regulation, these are countries that are characterized by widespread censorship of, uh, of the internet. And by that, I don't only mean, um, you know, trying to go to a website and seeing, you know, this website is unavailable or blocked. This is much more invasive. Um, there are, you know, countless examples of people using um, WeChat, which is sort of a messaging platform akin to WhatsApp, and having even those private messages between family members being censored. So imagine, you know, certain phrases and words that you're trying to write to uh, your grandmother, all of a sudden you're having uh, censored messages um, in like a family group chat. You know, so I, I think that level of invasiveness and sophistication would characterize the, the least free countries. Um, in addition to things like surveillance, where the government is using surveillance not only to monitor um, let's say the most prominent human rights activists or government opposition forces, but um, doing a sort of mass surveillance against all citizens to the point where China is now introducing a sort of mass social credit system, as they call it. Um, and we're talking about a complete level of surveillance of everything that you do online, all of your activities, everything that you post, um, your views not only towards the government, but towards certain social issues, economic issues. And then you're rated not only according to what you do online, but also your close friends and family. And then those things impact your sort of social credit score. And then that social credit score is measuring, in a, in a way, your allegiance to the government. And then that is used as a ranking of how trustworthy you are. And that can have all sorts of different effects on your everyday life, um, not to mention your you know, your economic livelihood or your job prospects. We're starting to, to see the internet really being used by authoritarian forces um, to some very scary ends. On the other hand, you know, you have the sort of coalition of free countries. And there's actually a, an intergovernmental body called the Freedom Online Coalition. This was started a couple of years ago by the United States and the government of the Netherlands in order to promote a set of um, norms behind an open, free, and secure internet. So the country that scores the best um, year after year in our report is actually Estonia. Um, and Estonia is characterized by not only a lack of um, censorship, you know, high levels of internet access, um, no sort of net neutrality violations. Um, you, you know, people are not arrested for making nonviolent political or social posts online. But also, uh, the the data of Estonians is highly secured and protected. Um, after Estonia was the victim of a very uh, a very harsh cyber attack that many suspect was at the hands of the of Russia, um, the government then went about creating this whole new cybersecurity system almost from scratch, and since then has become a global leader. Um, now NATO, NATO's Center for uh, Cyber Excellence is hosted in Estonia, and I think that in many ways, a lot of governments, after everything that we've seen in the United States and elsewhere, will have a lot to learn from the Estonian approach um, since that massive cyber attack at the country. 
And could you characterize some of the things that they were able to do that may have made a difference in terms of protecting online freedom and data? So they've gone to uh, introduce encryption really throughout all of their e-government services. There is such a huge level of, on the one hand, transparency, but a certain level of transparency that can only be backed up by high levels of cybersecurity as well. So everybody's, uh, all government officials, tax records, actually the tax records of, of a lot of people are all available online. You can track when the police will start an investigation on you actually. So if you might receive an alert, um, not during the time of the investigation, but afterwards, that law enforcement actually picked up some of your um, records and it was part of an investigation, maybe unrelated to you, but to certain people that you know or certain acquaintances. You as a citizen, I think, are empowered to know who has your data, what sort of data is there, knowing that it's, it's protected against a cyber attack or you know, malevolent hackers, whether they be non-state or foreign ones. And then also having that transparency of and trusting your government that any use of your data is within the norms of um, you know judicial oversight and transparency, and being able to sort of rest easy um, using the internet, knowing that your data is not going to be exploited for any nefarious means. When when you look at uh, the United States, for example, we rank uh, the U.S. ranks as one of the most free countries, and yet also in your report, the trend line is going in the wrong direction in the United States. What accounts for that, and what are some of the things uh, that Freedom House is concerned about in terms of developments in the U.S.? So the United States actually declined this year, and and when I say this year, our coverage period was from um, June 2016 to May 2017, so covering you know the very initial months of the current administration. The reason for that decline was a deterioration of the online media landscape, um, which is very vibrant and diverse, but also became very hyper-partisan and filled with disinformation. We saw the proliferation of fake news peaking you know, right ahead of the presidential election. We saw the hacking of the uh, servers of the Democratic National Committee. Beyond that, um, into the, the next administration, there were some alarming signs that the new administration perhaps would have a different view when it came to the protections that journalists traditionally enjoy, and also some alarming notions when it comes to data protection. By those two things, I mean it was the U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents who had asked Twitter back in March 2017 for the details over who owned a particular Twitter account that was, you know, a satirical Twitter Twitter account that was obviously posting some views that were critical of um, President Trump. The other aspect was that in July 2017, um, I believe it was the Justice Department that had asked um, an internet hosting company called DreamHost to hand over all data it had about users that visited a certain website that it hosted. That website was called disruptj20.org, and it was a website that helped coordinate um, protests around the Trump inauguration. So before that request sort of, that went, that went under a, a legal challenge um, in the country, or in the United States here, and before that, that would have given the Department of Justice a catalog of millions of Americans that visited a website whose sole purpose was to organize protests against the current administration. I think that sends a very alarming sign to what the current administration 
thinks of people that are critical of it. And, um, and you know, since then, there was, there was thankfully um, some pushback on behalf of that company. Since then, uh, the Department of Justice narrowed its request for, you know, only specific users. And I think that was important. And, I, and in, a certain, in a certain sense, that shows the, the certain degree of Internet freedom that we have in the United States in that companies are able to push back when they believe their government is overreaching. That same sort of protection and defense is not, uh, is not applicable in a lot of more undemocratic countries that we also cover. I mean, the paint picture you paint in many of these countries is quite um, dire. And I think in the case of China, downright dystopian. I mean, this notion of social cooperation score that you're getting basically to, you know, that, that not only encompasses you and your online activities, but those of your, you know, social graph as well is really creepy. And you couple that with the other types of surveillance that we know that they do, um, uh, video surveillance and, and signals Um, intelligence as well. A lot of the other activities you point to, uh, for example, shutting off or suspending cell phone and data access for um, populations that might be deemed to be critical of or a threat to a particular regime. Um, You've got a few examples of that. Actually, this year we saw governments in 19 countries suspending the internet access altogether, um, and that's up from 13 in 2016 and 7 the year before. So we've really seen this figure skyrocket over the years. Um, And one of the things is that of those 19 countries where we saw some type of network shutdown, in 10 countries, these shutdowns were specifically targeting um, a a region that is home to uh, an ethnic or religious minority, which means in many ways that Governments around the world are shifting tactics to what we saw um, perhaps most prominently in Egypt in 2011 when the government disconnected the Internet nationwide, you know, and for several days. Um, So we're not we're no longer seeing that type of disproportionate wholesale um, Internet shutdown. There are a couple reasons behind that. I think one of the reasons is that that's has a huge hit on a nation's economy. Um, people have, have done reports estimating the costs of Internet shutdowns in East Africa recently um, in, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So governments are, are adapting and rather than taking that sort of wholesale um, Internet shutdown are trying to now make those more targeted and narrowed. Now what we see is that governments will uh, disconnect a certain city, perhaps even a certain neighborhood um, for a certain amount of time in order to limit any, let's say, adverse negative consequences, but still achieving their desired effect. One of the the most kind of outrageous things that we saw over the past year was in Bahrain. Um, And there, there have been these uh, consistent protests between the inhabitants of a a town um, called Duraz, which is mainly populated by 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 uh, Shiite citizens um, that are the majority in the country, but in many ways marginalized in their own country. Um, and what the government had enacted for over a year was an internet curfew. So between the hours of, I think it was 7 p.m. until 1 a.m., residents of that town could not access the inter- any mobile internet. The idea is that the government would say, you know, this is for national security purposes, um, there's this protest, 
and you know the police is there uh, or you know all sorts of excuses that can be made but in reality it's, it's really a sort of collective punishment against this group um, and it's against and what we see is that the go governments now are doing this against certain marginalized groups where they know that they can get away with it so the likes of I don't think any you know the millions of citizens of any countries would really tolerate being suspended from the internet at large but if you're if you're targeting only um, people in Tibet in China for example um, or citizens in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt where there has always been this contentious nature between the local residents and the central government governments know that they can get away with these kind of strong arm tactics and it's this, it's this kind of cruel form of collective punishment under the um, guise of protecting national security. We've seen firsthand here in the United States how some of this can play out even in a very technologically sophisticated country with obviously a very diverse and sophisticated and free um, media uh, environment. Um, we've seen how these tactics can be used to really bend perceptions. What is the solution for countries, including those that are less affluent, less uh, of a strong tradition of uh, you know, free expression and freedom of the press? It's a difficult question because um, in a lot of these countries, the Internet has traditionally been the most free platform at the hands of citizens. And a lot of the countries that, that Freedom House ranked not free in its other reports that look at political rights or even press freedom, the Internet has been this boon for independent thinking, for even democratic activism. And so the notion that now the internet also poses a threat to democracy is something, you know, relatively new, but also something that we need to be careful how we react to that. And we need to be careful that we don't overreact because calling for more regulations on social media posts, more regulations on so-called hate speech or false news is in many ways exactly what a lot of these authoritarian governments want. That's something that they've been saying from the beginning in many cases. If you look at the statements made by leaders in China, um, Russia, Iran, many of these people see the internet as, in the most extreme cases, a, a CIA project, or they see it as a, a way for Western intervention in their countries. They have a very negative view, and they've always tried everything that they can to censor it and to regulate it. So we need to make sure that anything that we do, you know, moving forward, firstly does no harm. And in countries that do not have the same sort of judicial protections for free speech and, and constitutional protections, it's really challenging. I think in those places, um, it's most effective to actually go straight to the people, um, to go straight to civil society. And, you know, we've seen in, in throughout Eurasia that has been countering this challenge of Russian disinformation for many, many years now. We've seen the growth of civil society organizations, like an organization called Stop Fake, which uh, started off in Ukraine and now has many local offices in the Eurasia region. And they've been doing everything that they can to um, raise the alarm about disinformation campaigns, whether that happens, you know, from the government or from foreign governments. You know, there's that aspect of trainings and and you know websites that debunk false news stories. There's another aspect of just education, uh, making sure that 
citizens know how to use the internet responsibly. I think that the internet is still a fairly new phenomenon in human history. And, and we're going to have to do the sort of hard, let's say, long-term work in many ways of teaching our, starting from our children and, and all generations, to think twice before believing something that they read online, think twice before sharing something that they see online. Also, I think we need to we need to think about what role social media companies play in this and what they can do on their end without incentivizing any private censorship on their behalf um, to make sure to be able to, dis- to empower users, I think, to distinguish between fake or sponsored or manipulated content and content that comes from more trusted sources. You know, in, in the United States, for example, one easy step is just making sure that any sort of politically, uh, any sort of political advertising is sponsored in this area and, and indicates that it's sponsored in, in the same way that it does when it appears offline. There are a lot of things that we can look at even when it comes to cybersecurity, when it comes to markets for personal data, in order to make sure that we won't see the type of you know, micro-targeting that we saw here in the United States. I think the overarching solution is investing in very high-quality media. Something that we saw worldwide with the birth of the Internet was new media outlets that were coming out and could, you know, anybody in a certain way could start up their own news site and uh, churn out content either for certain ideological slants or, on the other hand, just to generate clicks and profit off ad revenue. And I think that as that market matures a little bit, um, we're going to need to be investing in journalism and realizing how important it is to have high-quality journalism that people can trust, not only in highly developed news markets like the United States, where we saw you know, fake news had a huge impact, but imagine in these sort of frontline states um, around, around the Middle East, around Eurasia, uh, where already the news media is so tightly controlled by the government, by you know, state-run news organizations or uh, news sites that are news um, platforms that have been bought up by oligarchs that have links to the government. And so at the end of the day, you know, a lot of this is just about supporting independent news, making sure that independent news has a platform and that, that it's, we're not going to be deluged with... Um, fake news or state propaganda just because they have the most money to throw at ads or to to buy up bots to flood social media with their own content. You know, you and I started out talking about the um, news about net neutrality and the FTC's decision to back away from net neutrality laws. Um, does, does that, um, in this country, bear on uh, internet freedom? I think so. Um, it's It's difficult, as some people have pointed out, that we're talking about hypotheticals on the one hand, um, as a lot of companies have stated that they will refrain from blocking or throttling content. Um, But on the other hand, I think that repealing net neutrality rules has the potential to view the information landscape away from our current model in which all content providers have a level playing field. And we, we leave room for internet service providers to become a sort of new arbiter of what type of content consumers may access. Um, and what at what speeds and pricing. Um, you know, I think that ISPs would now be free to make special deals to prioritize either their own content 
or that of the highest bidder, that ultimately may undermine Americans' freedom of choice. And something that um, few people have said, but it won't, it's not going to be the big tech companies necessarily that suffer, because after all, they have the financial resources to pay uh, for such prioritization if it, if it was ever necessary, although you know, they would see that as very undesirable. But it's going to be the smaller startups and innovative companies that, gets, that get priced out um, because they won't be able to compete. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot at play. Um, a lot of it also stems to Internet access here in the United States. I know that some of the reasoning behind repealing it was to spur investment in, you know, broadband infrastructure. The other aspect is that um, by, by having uh, ISPs be free to engage in, in distortions and discrimination of network traffic, and only require them to submit this, you know, to make it transparent. That helps in theory, but in reality, there's something like 50 million households here in the United States that don't have the ability to choose another high-speed provider. So I think that there are a lot of different things to, to weigh against each other. That's what makes this really complicated. But in terms of what sort of message that would give to the rest of the world, I think that's equally damning as well. Um, you know, this is a very different scenario, but if we look at what Iran is, in, is instituting uh, this year, the regulator has actually asked ISPs to um, make, ac make access to 500 domestic websites cheaper, 50% cheaper to consumers. So that incentivizes consumers through price, through differential pricing, to access websites that have sort of pre-approved content. Um, you know, that's an aspect of how a government can use net neutrality or abuse uh, a, a lack of net neutrality in order to push users to access censored pre-approved content. That's unlikely to happen in the United States because we don't have a government that is likely to do that. But what we would see is ISPs playing that role of, of incentivizing users from accessing certain services or certain news sites or, or you know, television broadcasting sites that either have paid a lot of money or have links to that actual company. And I think that's where we see some um, alarming room for... Um, you know, a distortion of the online media landscape. Adrian Shabazz, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And finally, the big news about the theft of data on 57 million Uber customers and an estimated 600,000 drivers was that the company decided to conceal that breach for months before finally telling regulators and the public. But behind the incident was a now common culprit, exposed administrative credentials tucked into computer code that was checked into GitHub, a popular cloud-based code repository. Our next guest, Elizabeth Lawler of the firm CyberArk, said that this kind of lapse is all too easy for modern, agile software development organizations like Uber to make. Software code, Lawler argues, is one of the most valuable and exposed privileged users in many organizations. In this week's podcast, we're excerpting a segment of a a longer conversation with Elizabeth about so-called 
DevOps secrets and why they pose a serious risk to modern organizations of all stripes. You can check out our full conversation later this week in a Security Ledger Spotlight podcast on privilege access management sponsored by CyberArk. Elizabeth Lawler. I'm VP of DevOps Security at CyberArk. Elizabeth, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. So when you say code is the new privileged user, talk about what you mean. And when we're talking about code, how does this basic question of identity and authentication manifest itself in the you know, application development and DevOps context? Yes, I think that's a great I, th- I think that's a great question. So if you th- if you think about uh, automation of software development or if you think about the creation of infrastructure to load software applications on it, much of that work, particularly in the cloud and uh, I, you know cloud and DevOps space is done by code. So that means that someone's risk, you know this is the old idea of, of IT scripting, right? But IT scripting has now become much more um, much more mainstream. Uh, instead of uh, you know having just a few system administrators writing you know writing their writing their scripts, these are there are many different tools out there now uh, in the open source and and, be, and as part of cloud platforms that help you write scripts to do privileged functions like lo, you know launching virtual machines or building and deploying software into a production environment. Things that used to be considered sensitive and were often governed by, I mean, so my background I worked in government and healthcare which is like uh, we deployed software uh, into those types of, into those systems. And, you know, we used to have like checklists, like physical checklists, like prove that you did, you know, that you followed a particular quality um, quality uh, path for deploying software. And now that's all done through automation. <clears throat> and so visibility into how that happened, what was permissioned, who has access to these systems, which contain things like root, Credentials for AWS, or um, which contain sensitive database passwords that are used in build and test jobs in, in in solutions like Jenkins. It's just kind of a wild west, right? Because anyone who's got API access or access to these tools now has access to all of this privileged material. And so, what we're looking, what we said is, well, look, there's really two kinds of actors here. There's the people who write the scripts and build the code to build these pipelines and these workflows. And then there's the code itself, which is working as the operator. And so what we wanted to do was provide identity for both, to be able to follow essentially the permissioning through the entire sort of software development lifecycle of either building and deploying applications or building and deploying infrastructure into cloud environments. The concept that code was the new privileged user in kind of inherently meant, did you realize that your code doesn't have an identity? <laughs> <laughs> and that no one gave it any permission particularly. It's permitted based on it was, it was originally network security groups or a perimeter security. You could see what it could see in its security group. But I think as we've seen over the, you know, the breaches over the last five years, that that model simply doesn't work and that what we really need are stronger authentication, authorization, and audit rules for all the code and coded workflows that we use to be able to abstract out certain levels of privilege from those workloads. And that's really the, the problem that we're solving now together with CyberArk. You talk a lot about DevOps secrets. What, what do you mean by that? And what types of secrets or uh, credentials are we talking about? And how do you connect the dots between those and risk uh, associated with a particular application? I think for most people, the sort of mental model of a DevOps secret is the 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 you know API key or the database password that was accidentally pushed to GitHub, right? In a in a midnight moment where you're really yeah. trying 
hurry and get your work done. And you're like, I just want to go home, you know, get push. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, crud, I just exposed, you know, the Amazon root, cre- root credential to, to, the, to the development environment or to the uh, QA environment or the prod environment. And, you know, that happens, I think, not because of laziness or because of lack of awareness of the problem. I think it's just, you know, a mistake often. Um, but there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of awareness that this is a common mistake and, um, and so that becomes a, a particular vulnerability. People are looking for the keys there. They're looking for database passwords there and they're exploiting them. Some of the worst cases was, you know, in a Docker hub entry, there was, you know, people were able to rebuild the Vine website in its entirety. And in some cases, it's just an Amazon root credential that's been potentially misappropriated for personal gain on the part of an attacker to either mine cryptocurrency or to use for a DDoS attack or something. Those, you know, people know to look there. I think similarly for those, we'll call them more sophisticated attackers who are now looking inside of systems for places to exploit, they're often phishing admins or DevOps or, or uh, engineer u- engineering users uh, looking for credentials on their laptop and then using that to move inside of these, into these cloud environments and then laterally amongst them. And places like configuration management where many credentials are stored, password, SSH keys, API keys, et cetera. And places like, you know, build and test systems like Jenkins, they know that they can get in there and get very powerful system account credentials for cloud platforms and for other connected systems and then then use those to either disrupt the operations of the group that's being attacked or to, um, you know, essentially misappropriate those resources or exfiltrate data or whatever. Elizabeth Waller of CyberArk and Conjure, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me. 